0: When my own kids pray on Sunday morning, I don't think they want to say dad. They refer to me as Pastor Tom. Actually, I make them do that at home, just if you ever wondered. (laughs) Yes, Pastor Dad. (laughs) We're in Acts chapter 6, week 10 in our journey through the book of Acts. And this is a great little passage that's just packed with a lot for us to learn. Uh, Let's read it first. It's uh, chapter 6. Just the first seven verses. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Proctorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith what we have fallen into now as we've gone through this story are three basic threads there's this explosive spreading of the gospel we constantly come back to because it's the recurring theme interspersed with the threats to that movement and then periodically stepping back and taking this snapshot of the church and making observations. You ought to be able to have seen those three threads as we've gone this far in the book of Acts. When we look particularly at the threats to the movement, he's keeping us focused in turn on the external threats, but also the insidious internal threats. As the enemy, Satan is introduced in chapter 5, and we know that the battle for the hearts and minds of men is not just a battle of ideas, as transformative as the gospel ideas are. It's a battle for the hearts, for the spirit of men. Uh, Paul says our battle's not against flesh and blood. Luke intends for us to recognize that while men are threatening the church, they are the tools of the great adversary of the things of God. And Satan is both attacking from without, but attacking from within. Make no mistake, Satan goes to church every single Sunday. He's the most faithful church attender of all. And most churches that fail to contribute to what we now have come to understand the church really is. It's a movement of the gospel to transform the whole world with the love of Christ. Local churches that fail to become a part of that are not churches that have succumbed to outside forces. They're churches predominantly who have succumbed to interior forces and they've fallen apart from the inside. What we're about to see today is one way that that threat came to the early church and how they dealt with it, and it's the threat of conflict, an issue that came up that was threatening to divide them, and there's a lot that we can learn about how we can deal with conflict when it arises among us. So, if you take out your notes, you'll see the flow. We're going to talk a little bit about putting conflict in perspective. We're going to look at the nature of this particular conflict. We're going to look at how the apostles responded to it, what the good result was, and then what we can learn in general—not just about conflict, but about the makeup of the church. I believe that's the real interpretive key when you come to this in the story. It's about the threat of conflict and how the apostles, the spiritual leaders of the church dealt with it. So let's just talk about conflict in general. As a pastor, part of my desire as we are so early in our life as a church body is to give us the tools to be those that keep peace, that make peace, that solve conflicts, that bring grace into situations. Because like you, I have experienced spiritual communities that were torn apart by an inability to deal with conflict. And one of the misunderstandings that we have about conflict is that it's wrong and it's to be avoided. So what I want to do is just share with you three ideas about conflict that really give us some perspective about it. The first is that in fact, conflict is normal. Quarreling is the problem. Often we think that just that we disagree is an issue. And so as Christians, we're afraid to talk about our differences. They get buried deep down inside of us. We become very passive aggressive or they explode into true anger and divisiveness because we're taught somehow we're not supposed to disagree. That's phony. That's not what the Bible means by unity. The fact is God created us with diversity and all that conflict is, if you understand it, all the conflict is is when all that variety responds to a given situation. Conflict is normal. The problem is quarreling. Quarreling is when we deal with conflict badly. James teaches us about where quarreling comes from. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Say it with me. What causes fights among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have. And so you quarrel and fight. You see, most of us come into conflict with our own needs in mind, with our own expectations. And then they're not met. And then we go to battle for them. That happens in your homes, and that happens in church boardrooms. It happens in small groups, all sorts of places. We think that we should therefore avoid conflict. No, that's not the problem. The problem is avoiding quarreling. The second thing that I think it's important that we recognize is that conflict is necessary for growth. There is no growth without having to work through things, without challenging ourselves. There's no lessons to be learned. I believe God wired conflict into the nature of things in order to help our our faith grow, help our character develop, help us to learn and to build our faith. And that leads to the third thing. You see, you can either face conflict and turn it into an obstacle or an opportunity. When we deal with conflict badly, it becomes an obstacle to relationships. It becomes an obstacle to our spiritual growth. It becomes a severe obstacle to our community. How many of you would say that you have experienced a church fellowship that was torn apart or or dramatically impacted by people's inability to deal with conflict well? Yeah, sure, look around you. That's a majority of us. I've experienced that. We're going to have differences of opinion. We need differences of opinion. Frankly, I would add a fourth point. Conflict is interesting. (laughs) Life would be boring without it. The point is we put ourselves in front of the opportunity. We become an obstacle to what God wants us to learn. And and therefore, I think this particular attack we're seeing in the book of Acts is maybe throughout history the enemy's most successful strategy. That being the case, let's look at this particular point of conflict because there's a lot we can learn from it, all right? The Grecian Jews claim that the Hebraic Jews were not caring for their orphans and widows. Now, I wanna make three observations about the conflict itself. The first is that the conflict came from a very positive situation. Conflict can come through dysfunction. It can come through non-function. And it can come through a very productive, positive environment. This particular conflict grew out of the fact that, as he says, at that time, the disciples were greatly increasing in number, which we know is what Jesus wanted to do. He said, I'm going to build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's growing significantly. If we succeed at fulfilling our vision as a church, the success itself will breed conflict because all circumstances in life Bring us to points where we're going to disagree. We're going to react differently to things. A lot of us feel like, well, that shouldn't happen. No, of course it's going to happen. But we need to see it not as an obstacle, but an opportunity to do better. Let me just back up. I want to point out how the story begins and how it ends. Verse 1 begins with, "...in those days when the number of disciples was increasing." in those days indicates that there may have been a period of time between the end of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six. Time has gone by and the church continues to grow. Then they face conflict. They have to deal with conflict. Now I want you to see what is said in verse seven. So the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased. What's the next word? Rapidly. So think about this. They go into the conflict with things going as planned. It was good, they're growing, but however they dealt with the conflict, it gave momentum to the movement so that whatever was happening at the beginning, which was good, turned into something that was even better. Now they were growing even more rapidly. You see, if we learn to deal with conflict effectively, that will be the result. We'll grow through it, we'll be better, and we'll be more on mission. So in this case, it came out of a positive situation. <laughs> Secondly, even though all of these believers at this point were Jewish, this conflict was based on ethnic and cultural issues. Let me explain that for you. The Grecian Jews were the Hellenists. They were not born in the Holy Land. They were born somewhere throughout the diaspora that went all throughout the world. They came to Jerusalem three times a year. Pentecost, as you remember, was one of those pilgrimages. So those that had come who were Hellenists came to Christ, and now they have stayed under the teaching of the apostles. They speak Greek. They use the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in their worship. They're Greek-speaking in the synagogue. They are more Greek-thinking in their ideas as well. So that's one group. Then you have the Hebraic Christians, those who were born in the Holy Land. They are not just religiously Jewish, but they are strongly culturally Jewish. They speak Aramaic, which is a contemporary form of Hebrew. They worship in the original tongue, Hebrew, and they're committed to preserving Jewish culture and customs. So even though these people came together and said we're all sons and daughters of Abraham, they are two very distinct cultural groups. So interestingly, one of the very first internal conflicts in this church was ethnic in nature. I find that fascinating. We want very much to reflect a church that is a melting pot because that's what the real church of Jesus Christ is. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We want our body of Christ to reflect that diversity. That was one of the things that marked the original church, that all these different classes and cultures could come together in a way that had been believed impossible prior to the unity that they found in Christ. But the reality is, even in the best of situations, if we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ across cultural and ethnic barriers, our differences are gonna create discomfort and may sometimes offend. We don't mean to, it's not prejudice, it's ignorance, Or it's just the fact that cultures have strongly held traditions and worldviews. It's a natural thing. So I want to be very careful not to suggest that this is birthed out of an overt prejudice or bigotry towards the Grecians. There's no indication of that. It's just a natural result of being a melting pot. How the apostles deal with this has to take into account the nature of that conflict. The third thing is the, the conflict threatened both the community and the mission of the church. I remember how we talked about uh, just a couple of weeks ago how being a radical community, radically caring and loving one another was not only Jesus' goal for us, but it was connected to his mission for us that we can only effectively reach the world if we are a true caring community. They are not mutually exclusive. In fact, we can't be a real caring community if we're not reaching out at the same time. That's a self-centered community. It's not a caring community. And we can't reach out effectively if we're not doing it out of this grace-saturated community. That's clear in the book of Acts. This is threatening both the community of the church, because obviously there's a, a potential division here, but it's also threatening the mission of the church. How do they deal with it? I wanna suggest six words. The first word is leadership. This is a story of how the apostles led the early church through this conflict into a better place. Godly leadership in a church is critical for effective peacemaking. Very often, churches that fall short from being a true place where Jesus is building his church, very often the fault lies in the leaders themselves because they are the worst at conflict resolution. We put the wrong people in leadership. How the leaders respond to this is very important. What did that leadership do? The second word is responsiveness. They dealt with it. They didn't let it sit. They addressed the issue when it came up. All too often, churches and families try to ignore problems until they're too big to deal with, until they've created such a cancer that you can't solve it anymore. You don't even know where to start and and where to end. Like a tumor that has spread to the point where the surgeons can't get at it anymore. To not deal with conflict is a response. It's a decision to let it go underground, and become a cancer. Here's the third word, transparency. It says they gathered the community together to address the issue. One of the most common ways that dysfunctional churches deal with conflict is by end arounds, backroom conversations, triangulation. I have an issue, I have an observation, I don't want to bring it to you directly, so uh, I'm gonna talk about it with somebody else. And the problem with that is that person doesn't know the truth of the whole, so all I'm getting is my opinion reaffirmed by them. Worse, I'm passing on my opinion to them without any opportunity to really have the truth discovered. One reality of conflict is that it's rare that there's any single side, and when we are arrogant enough to think that we have nothing to learn, we are the obstacle to peacemaking. Triangulating, back rooms, conversations, then drawing others into those conversations creates a situation that is doomed. Real godly leadership is not ashamed of anything. That doesn't mean there isn't a place for confidentiality, that there aren't appropriate conversations to have in appropriate places, but not because we're hiding dysfunctionality, not because we're acting in a way that if it came to light, we would be embarrassed. So there's transparency here. There's a fourth thing that happens, and I wanna spend a little time on this. The leadership brings clarity. Let me read what they say. Let's look at it again. Uh, verse 2 so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of god in order to wait on tables brothers choose 7 men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer ministry and the word godly leadership Helps the congregation move through conflict by creating clarity around three things roles, priorities, and standards. The first thing that godly leadership does is to clarify their own role and to make sure they're on task. One of the most difficult parts of being a spiritual leader is knowing what problem is something you need to step in and fix. And unfortunately, congregations don't help because everybody in the congregation thinks that their issue, their need, is the one the pastor should step into. And the problem is pastors run around trying to meet everybody's expectations, and that's impossible. So the first thing that the apostles do is say, wow, this is a real need, but if we do that, then what God has really called us to is gonna be compromised. So godly leadership first clarifies their own role, and he talks about two areas, the ministry of the word of God and prayer. Godly leadership, my primary role, is to be in connection with God. Word of God is God speaking to us. Prayer is our speaking to and listening to God to move in our hearts. The primary task of leadership is visional and spiritual in nature. It's also missional because to minister the word of God as we're seeing throughout the whole of the book of Acts is rooted in the bringing of the gospel. We need to make sure that we're not so busy running around trying to meet everybody's needs that we're neglecting the one thing that everybody needs above everything else from us. Sometimes everybody else only sees their particular need that pastor isn't meeting. I'm going to tell you just a quick story about my last church. I haven't talked about my last church in a while here, but we had a very positive experience for almost 10 years. But then the last year of my time there, things seemed to fall apart. And I'm only still now gaining clarity as to uh, what took place and how I might have acted differently had I acquired some of the wisdom that I have now in hindsight, but also to see how dysfunctionality in, in the body affected it. For a long time at that church as we were growing, because things were going quite well, I was able to speak with great clarity about my role as the visional leader and the equipper, which is the Ephesians 4 model, to equip the saints to the work of ministry and just to release people to serve. But as the church became several hundred, people were feeling less connected because of those larger numbers. And their focus on me shifted and what they wanted was more focus on their needs. Um, as a family, we had just come through a very difficult season. Um, Anna had been in a near-fatal car accident, and we were recovering from all the fallout of that. You can just imagine those of you that have been through that. It's not just about the one you love recovering. It's the insurance and the claims and the bills and, and the conflict uh, with those that caused it. I mean, it was just it was a mess. And so I, I was at a low point when a group of people brought these complaints to me about falling short on meeting a lot of people's individual needs, I now recognize that I made a bad mistake by trying to meet their needs. I decided I was just gonna boot up and make the effort. And the problem was I could never, I didn't have the gifts to meet all those needs, I didn't have the energy or the time to step into all those different roles. And more importantly, when I did those things, I was not able to focus on the things that I do well, so those things really lacked. Not only that, I was giving out in ways that I wasn't wired by God to give out, and so consequently, they were just draining me and emptying me, so I was in a worse place. I wasn't ministering out of overflow, so I became increasingly dysfunctional. And eventually the the scenario just kind of exploded. Uh, I'm not going to do that here. I'm not going to do that here. I am very committed to recognizing that I am not the man, nor does God expect me to be the man to meet all of your needs and to be there for all of you. And that's not because I don't care. Do you understand it would just be arrogant of me to think that I ought to be that person? And it would put me in the way of those in this body that God has uniquely gifted to meet your needs. So the apostles clarify their own roles. They also clarify the priorities. They don't discount. You know, when you see that passage and it says, we don't want to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait tables. It sounds in English so condescending. But in the Greek, the root word diakon, which means to serve, is used both in their description of serving tables and ministering or serving the word of God. They're not denigrating that need. They're just broadening the understanding of all the needs, that there are the immediate needs that need to be met, People need to eat, people need to be cared for, people that are hurting need to be touched, but then there's the eternal needs and they're just as important. There are both the micro priorities, the immediate needs, and then there are the eternal needs, all of which are important. And then thirdly, they clarify the standards. When they go looking for other people to be involved, they're very clear that we're not looking for just the first person who comes along who's willing to meet this need. We want to make sure that the people that we're giving this precious task to are spiritually mature, full of the Holy Spirit, which means surrendered completely to the Holy Spirit. We learned that a few weeks ago. And finally, those with wisdom. You know what wisdom means? Wisdom means being able to take the Word of God and apply it to the immediate circumstance in a way that brings solutions. That's wisdom. And so they clarified who it is that ought to be stepping in. The fifth word is delegation. Good leadership recognizes there's a point where you let go and you let other people get involved. We're definitely at that stage as a church. (laughs) If we're going to really move to that next level, I'm going to need to let go of certain things, some of which I really love to do because I've got, other things that are more appropriate to my role, and my job and the job of other spiritual leaders is to equip you to do the work of ministry. They do that here. They delegate. But here's the sixth word, and I just want to address it quickly. The sixth word is inclusion. You may miss this, but if you pay very careful attention to the names of those men that are chosen for this job, you'll notice something unique about them. They're all Greek, they're all Greek. The apostles were all Hebraic Jews. They followed Jesus in the Holy Land. They were those that God used to build the church upon the apostles. They're the ones that will give us the New Testament scriptures. But in solving this issue, they recognize that the church is bigger than them and their kind and their culture. And when they delegate, they're inclusive in their delegation. They bring the Greeks to the table. Now, that was so radical in this day because the Greeks and the Hebrew Jews had a a passive war that went on between them. When they came to Jerusalem, the Hellenistic Jews had synagogues where they read the Greek and spoke in the Greek. There was a lot of animosity. They came together in Christ, and this was a real test as to how much they were willing to come together. And godly leadership was willing to let go and open up and put more seats at the table and be inclusive. What an incredible gift that must have been to the Greek believers, the Hellenists. What an incredible gift to them. How wise an act of leadership. How glorious to Christ, who said, all men will know you're my followers by your love for one another. And that brought a good result. The believers were pleased. The needs were met. The message spread. The movement grew the conflict was embraced as an opportunity to grow, to affirm, to grow closer together. I love the picture that we see at the end here. Let's just read it one more time. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It's almost like the conflict served as a ramp to push them out into even greater mission. And I believe that when godly people embrace these opportunities to learn from each other and to deal with conflict, that's exactly what God does. He uses it. The word of God spread, but not just the word of God and the message, but the word of this community spread. It's interesting to note at the end, the last statement is, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Again, Luke's very intentional. Think about it. The priests were the ones in the nation of Israel who cared for the poor. They were the ones that took the resources, disseminated them, and cared for the widows. And now what they see is this new community of believers that are modeling Christ, caring for one another. Tertullian reports that. The phrase that was common by those that observed the early church was this, behold how they love one another. Imagine how that attracted these priests. More than that, as they come into the church, they are now among equals. But we see really beginning here is the realization of what Peter teaches us, that we are all a kingdom of priests. We are all called to serve. What is marked in this moment is a movement from the acts of the apostles to the acts of of the people of God. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four, from Christ the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You see, what we recognize here is that as God continues to grow his church and as it matures, Godly leadership now begins to embrace the reality that as a kingdom of priests, we are all called to serve. We are all gifted to serve. Some need is not being met in the body if you're not the one meeting it. We're all priests. We all serve the body. I love that. And I believe that we are at a strategic point as a church in relation to that. We still have this church plant structure, As the year goes by, we're going to be launching a more organized structure for leadership. As we grow, we have to achieve this next level just like this church did. We have to get to the point where you embrace the giftedness and the joy of serving in a community where you are part and without you. The whole body does not do its part. We are not growing, we are incomplete without you. But when you fit in that piece, You grow, the body grows, the kingdom of God grows. It's win, win, win. And that's what's birthed here. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer is that we would be a peacekeeping, a peacemaking community. That we would recognize the power of James' simple words, that each of us should be quick to listen, slow to speak, Slow to anger. We reverse that every day of our lives. We're so quick to anger. And we're quick to speak and to argue. Then we're not really listening. We're just listening to argue and defeat. Father, we want to be a body that uses the conflict that you build into our lives as an opportunity to grow personally, to grow as your people, and to glorify Christ to the world around us. Help the world to see us and say, behold, how they love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.